this is The Guardian. Hey, Jane Lee here. Controversial WikiLeaks founder Julian Assange's long battle to avoid being sent from the UK to the US to face espionage charges came to a head last week when the UK's Home Secretary approved his extradition. Given that Assange is an Australian citizen, some of his supporters had hoped that the new Albanese government would intervene on his behalf and stop this from happening. But although Australian Prime Minister Anthony Albanese maintains he thinks this saga has gone on too long, his government insists it won't be conducting diplomacy by megaphone. And Foreign Affairs Minister Penny Wong said the Australian government couldn't intervene in the legal matters of another country. In this episode from our global news podcast, Today in Focus, host Michael Safi and reporter Ben Quinn recap Assange's story so far, and they explore the significance that his extradition could have on journalism in the future. We love you! Excuse me. Hi, um, my name's Sammy Kem. I'm, uh, I work for the Guardian podcast, um, Today in Focus. You're saying you love Assange. Can you just tell me about that? About what? Of course we love Julian Assange. Why do you love Julian Assange? Julian Assange represents the freedom of the press. And we're the little children. Bravo! Bravo! Bravo, my darling! Few public figures are harder to categorise than the WikiLeaks founder, Julian Assange. To his fans, he's a fearless truth-teller. To governments, he's a dangerous fanatic. Lots of others just think he's a slightly strange guy, part of a saga that's getting hard to follow. But almost everyone will have read journalism based on the leaks he's published, covering the Iraq and Afghanistan wars, decades of top-secret US diplomatic cables, the CIA's hacking tools, right up to the emails of the Democratic National Committee. Well, it's wonderful to see people rallying around in defence of Julian Assange. Uh, Myself, I've been in the streets uh, literally 10 years, since uh, 2012, and I have come across the wonderful solidarity of the British people. Uh, He always had support, and now it's coming to fruition. I'm just an ordinary bloke, and I've come along dressed as a groom reaper to say British justice is dead. In the past few years, Assange's many enemies, chief among them the US government, have started closing in. Julian's a fighter and he's going to keep fighting until we win this and uh, I'm the same, I'll fight until Julian's free. Now, Assange finds himself on the edge of a scenario he and his most passionate supporters have fought for years to avoid. Extradition to the US and the prospect of a lifetime in prison in a case that might have implications, not just for Assange, but for journalism itself. From The Guardian, I'm Michael Safi. Today in Focus, what's at stake in the extradition of Julian Assange? A warning before we begin. This episode contains discussions of suicide. Ben Quinn, you're a news reporter with The Guardian and you've been covering this case for the past few years and it's easy now to forget how radical WikiLeaks was when it emerged, how different it was to anything that had come before. Can you tell me a bit about where this website came from and what made it so unique and to governments so dangerous? 
Well, WikiLeaks is a platform which was launched in 2006 by Julian Assange and some others, but Julian Assange has essentially always been the moving force behind it. So I was a famous teenage computer hacker in Australia and a long-term activist, and I've been reading General's emails since I was 17. Its website describes it as a platform that will accept restricted or censored material of political, ethical, diplomatic or historical significance. And really, it's so dangerous as far as those who would fear it are concerned because of a number of things, of the personnel involved uh, and their capabilities, particularly Julian Assange, and also the way in which they tapped into new ways in which technology could make it safe and facilitate whistleblowing in a way that never had happened before, set itself up as a place where whistleblowers could go in confidence that they they wouldn't be identified. We start with a startling report on grand corruption in Kenya that could jolt the political landscape. We saw that very quickly in some of the early leaks. They ranged from leaks in relation to corruption in Kenya in 2007 to one that particularly sticks out in my mind, the membership list of the British National Party, which was on the cusp or there are thereabouts of surging at that stage. So after that leak, that British far-right party was nobbled in a way that perhaps mainstream media would not have been able to do so. That wasn't a governmental leak, but it was an early example of what WikiLeaks could do. In the years since those early leaks, there's been so much controversy around Assange. But The US is trying to prosecute him over one episode in particular, which was a series of leaks he published 12 years ago. So take us back to 2010. What did Assange do that year? WikiLeaks published a series of documents which amounted to tens, actually hundreds of thousands of classified U.S. documents. When the White House blasting the release of over 90,000 U.S. military records on the war in Afghanistan. This is the largest leak in military history. In July of 2010, around 90,000 documents relating to the war in Afghanistan. Good morning, Erica. Well, this isn't a wiki leak. This is a wiki torrent. And in October, uh, almost 400,000 classified U.S. documents about the war in Iraq. In our release of these 400,000 documents about the Iraq war, the intimate detail of that war from the US perspective. So one of the most potent aspects of that WikiLeaks leak was a video which WikiLeaks released. And there's more that keep walking by and one of them has a weapon. And they called it collateral murder. It was filmed from a U.S. military Apache helicopter. It showed the blasting to pieces of a number of people in Iraq, including a Reuters cameraman. Come on, fire! It was quite a, a vivid leak, which instantly chimed, cut through into the public consciousness. Oh yeah, look at those dead bastards! And then you had a drop off diplomatic cables, uh, US diplomatic cables, which included unguarded comments and analysis of the countries in which they were operating. Now comes mass distribution number three, this time cables, electronic diplomatic communications sent between headquarters in Washington, D.C. and embassies and consulates around the world. So in that year, really, uh, WikiLeaks was working with lots of mainstream media partners 
in a way that it had not done so before. And it really broke through, not just into the public consciousness, but into the consciousness of those who would fear it. In other words, governments around the world. Among the specifics, worries about security at a Pakistan nuclear facility. Concern about alleged links between the Russian government and the mafia, how Saudi Arabia, Jordan and Bahrain wanted the US to attack Iran, plus allegations and examples of corruption within the Afghan government. We're talking here about, about war logs, about diplomatic cables. I mean, I remember when I was based in India, I, I would look up these cables to see what US diplomats had written about different issues, about different people an incredible resource that led to some really powerful stories. Tell me about the impact that those three releases in 2010 had around the world. So they did have real-world consequences. They changed journalism. We do journalism differently as a result of it. And you might also say perhaps one of the biggest uh, impacts was the way in which it changed the perception and the view of the US as well. In these undated pictures, Kolodnitskaya stands close to the heart of the Gaddafi regime. She was one of four Ukrainian nurses taking care of him. Dictators, it uh, preceded the uh, Arab Spring. It opened up in the minds of many people what they had previously thought was impossible. And it opened their minds up to the luxury and the lifestyle of the dictators in Middle Eastern countries. But a US diplomatic cable published by WikiLeaks late last year claimed the Libyan leader was deeply attached to Kolodnitska. The cable described her as a voluptuous blonde. The focus of real anger which led to their overthrow in many cases. So they did have real world consequences which we're still experiencing. And Ben, how did it feel for you as a reporter to see WikiLeaks emerging with these these huge leaks, some of the largest in history, and in such quick succession? Anyone who was a journalist at that time can tell you that it was really the first time that the full, you could say, revolutionary potential of the internet revealed itself. There was an expectation journalism would change forever, and and, and it did. And Ben, WikiLeaks had a very particular view of this kind of information, which was that it needed to be made public. And that was in contrast to some of the media outlets, including The Guardian, who Assange worked with, who wanted to curate the information, decide what was and wasn't in the public interest as they saw it. Why did Assange take the view that he did? Well, Julian Assange is a a character who, in, in some ways, transcends left and right, perhaps in terms of his political worldview. You might want to view him as a a libertarian, a libertarian of the left, but in many people's minds, he's someone who believes in openness, in making information free. And I think it's fair to say that there would have been some difference of opinion between his view of uh, that material and how to handle it and many of the partners he worked with. But WikiLeaks would also say that they also took great care at every turn to redact material where possible to ensure that no harm was done. And it remains a contentious area, but at the heart of it is Julian Assange's view of information and and freeing information so it should be accessible to all. Yeah, and in fact, Assange would go further and say that nobody has been proven to have been killed as a result of WikiLeaks' work. But if I understand his philosophy correctly, it's that there are a select few things that he thinks governments should be allowed to keep secret. 
but that generally politicians can't be trusted to decide what should and shouldn't be hidden from the public because they have such a vested interest in keeping lots of things quiet. That's true. And you also have to recognise that we're talking about a massive, massive amount of information. A little bitty piece of information can be added to a a network of information and really open up uh, an understanding that just wasn't there before. What the US authorities who are pursuing him would say is that much of this information would appear to be innocuous if put into the public domain at a particular time, but at a later stage added to other pieces of information could potentially lead to the cross-referencing and identification, for example, of informers. So it's a contentious area. How did the US react at the time to having so many of its state secrets put into into newspapers and, and accessible freely on a website? The US reacted largely with anger. And it might be worth recalling that the current US President Joe Biden, at that point, he was Obama's vice president, he likened Julian Assange to, quote, a high-tech terrorist. Mitch McConnell says he's a high-tech terrorist. Others say this is akin to the Pentagon Papers. Where do you come down? I would argue that it's closer to being a high-tech terrorist than the the Pentagon Papers. It it might be interesting to remember what one of the Trump administration's uh, officials, a former assistant attorney general, uh, John Demers, said Assange is, is no journalist. He said no responsible actor, journalist or otherwise, would purposely publish the names of individuals who he or she knew to be confidential human sources and war zones, uh, exposing them, as he said, to, to danger. In the years that followed those momentous leaks, Ben, the Assange story took a few dark turns. He was accused of sexual assault by two women in Sweden. He denied any wrongdoing and refused to travel there to answer the charges for fear of being extradited to the US. The big risk, the risk we have always been concerned about, uh, is onwards extradition to the United States. Uh, And that seems to be increasingly serious and increasingly likely. And so, to avoid being sent to Sweden, he sought asylum in the Ecuadorian embassy in London, where he stayed for seven years. Thanks to the principled stance of the Ecuadorian government and the support of its people, I am safe in this embassy to speak to you. By 2019, the Swedes had dropped the sexual assault investigation, saying it was impossible to pursue while Assange was in the embassy. And in Ecuador, the government had changed and the new one was frankly sick of the whole affair. And so they evicted him. They allowed British police to go in there and drag Assange out. That breaking news, WikiLeaks founder Julian Assange arrested in London. after. And a US court unveiled what Assange had actually been warning about for many years, which was this indictment against him. And a federal grand jury has indicted WikiLeaks founder Julian Assange on 18 counts related to the release of classified information. What exactly were the Americans accusing him of? So it relates to the leak of about 700,000 classified documents handed to WikiLeaks by the former US intelligence analyst Chelsea Manning in 2010. And as a result, Assange faces an 18-count indictment from the US government. Uh, He's wanted on 17 charges under the Espionage Act and one of conspiracy to commit computer intrusion. So we're largely talking about alleged breaches of the Espionage Act. 
Okay, so Ben, since then, this case has played out in the courts. What's been the main issue of contention when it comes to this question of whether Assange can be legally extradited to the US? One of the main issues has been his mental health and his well-being. In the legal battle to date here in the UK, it's really been uh, a battle over what it would mean for him were he to be incarcerated in the US in particularly high security conditions and what that would mean for his life. That's been the main issue and that's been what had won the day for him and his lawyers at one point. The US government has won its appeal at the High Court in London over the extradition of the WikiLeaks founder Julian Assange. And that was subsequently overturned when the US were able to offer a package of measures which convinced the courts here that it would be safe to extradite Julian Assange in line with the UK-US treaty which exists for extradition. Interesting. So the question has been one of of basically if Assange was to be extradited, what kinds of conditions would he be living in in a US prison and what would that do to his mental health? Yes. So the package of measures which the US offered, and in some ways it was unprecedented, was one in which they pledged that he wouldn't be held in maximum security conditions, that he could serve his sentence or a remainder of his sentence in his native Australia. Critically, the US has now given very key assurances that Mr Assange, no matter how mentally ill he may be, will be treated humanely. And it's these this was enough to gave. nullify the initial concerns uh, of the courts here. Uh, Priti Patel, the UK Home Secretary, uh, has indeed given that green light and approved the extradition of WikiLeaks co-founder Julian Assange. Uh, so, Ben, on Friday, the Home Secretary, Priti Patel, cleared the way for the extradition of Assange to take place. One thing I want to understand is why was it a politician making that call and not a judge in a court? Priti Patel was making the call because this period of the legal battle had run its course and in line with procedure, it shifted to Priti Patel, to the Home Secretary, to make a decision in line with what she is allowed to do by the extradition agreement between the US. And Patel made the decision that there was no obstacle to Assange being extradited. So what happens to him now? Well, from Patel's decision, Julian Assange's legal team have 14 days to appeal. And indeed, his wife, Stella, has said they will do that. And she said, we're going to fight this. We're going to use every appeal avenue. I mean, I have no words to express what it's like to see uh, the UK process being used as a way to prolong Julian's suffering. She said she's going to spend every waking hour fighting for him until he's free. We're not at the end of the road here. We're going to fight this. We're going to use every appeal avenue. And we're going to fight. What we're going to see now is a new legal battle. And we're going to see uh, new arguments being deployed. We expect Assange will be claiming that what he's facing is a politically motivated attempt to extradite him and he'll use new evidence such as the allegations that the CIA had actually plotted to assassinate him. That's something which some legal experts have said could have some traction. A new report by Yahoo News has come out with some serious claims. It goes into details about the CIA's war on WikiLeaks and its founder, even stating that the US had plans to abduct or even assassinate Julian Assange. And so how big a moment was last Friday, Patel's decision, in this wider Assange story? Well, it was a moment without the sort of drama and 
theater. The Home Office released uh, details of their decision. There was no footage of Pretty Patel standing at a podium to, uh, in, uh, telling the world that she was going to uh, authorize his extradition. It's really a key moment. It's difficult to say whether it's a halfway point because a lot of months, a lot of years have passed. But it, it's the closing of one chapter and it's potentially the opening of a new one, which you might describe as the end game. I spoke to Julian about 45 minutes ago. <clears throat> he had just learned of the decision. He was uh, not contactable. So Ben, Assange has now spent seven years in the Ecuadorian embassy and three years in prison. He has little chance of being released while his case works its way through the courts because a judge says he skipped bail once to hide out in the Ecuadorian embassy and he fears he could do it again. What do we know about the toll that this fight against extradition is taking on Assange? What is life like inside Belmarsh Prison where he's incarcerated? Belmarsh Prison is a high security prison in, in South London. And for those who haven't been there, it's uh, on a fairly bleak stretch of ground, which is not the most accessible. He's confined to a cell of about 10 square yards for about 22 hours a day. He's allowed out only to collect food and antidepressant medication, uh, take a shower, go for his allotted exercise in the prison yard. And perhaps in a way which is most difficult of all for someone like Julian Assange. There are computers there, but they don't have any internet access. And as his wife Stella has said, he's barely hanging on inside Belmarsh. And she said that he's fighting for his life and uh, he feels like this is an endless punishment. At times he's in such despair that he thinks he's a burden. So suicide has been a, a, a very, very real fear. At one stage, Assange was moved to the prison's medical wing for round-the-clock supervision. So his health has been continually on the mind of his wife and and, and those who are close to him. And despite the restrictions on him, Assange, it turns out, has been able to have some kind of family life in prison, right? He has. He he married his now wife, uh, Stella Morris, as she was known then. They have two small children. She was married uh, at Belmarsh in a, in a Vivian Westwood dress, um, a dress designed by the, by the UK designer who's one of his supporters. Thank you, guys. I don't know what to say. I'm very happy. I'm very sad. I love Julian with all my heart. So... There has been a situation where he's been in prison for quite a while now, but to his family, they've been hanging on and they can't see him, but it's surely been a really abnormal experience, for the, particularly for the children. Yeah, a really difficult one, I'm sure. And Ben, if Julian Assange is extradited to the US, do we have any sense of the kinds of conditions he'd be imprisoned in while he's tried? Well, Julian Assange's supporters have put forward the case and more importantly his legal team have put forward the case that he would be held in a a US supermax prison of the type which um, the most serious terrorist offenders have been held. If Julian is extradited and placed under extreme conditions of isolation it will drive him to take his own life. Extradition is oppressive. Although the U.S. have put forward this package of what they would describe as reassurances that he would not be held in a supermax prison or, or perhaps for not as long as he otherwise would be, there's a doubt there. There's a doubt on the part of his supporters that the U.S. wouldn't quite hold to that promise and they point out that there is wriggle room within the U.S. assurances for that and 
there's the fear that if he were to be sent to the US, he potentially could be locked up for many, many years and would potentially be at risk of taking his own life or would be only coming out when he's a very old man. And Ben, we're talking as if the trial, you know, has already happened and he's guilty. Like, is there any doubt at all that Julian Assange would be found guilty in these American proceedings? Well, we can look at the case of Chelsea Manning, the US intelligence analyst. They were found guilty. Team Assange view this as a very, very politicized case. And the witnesses that they've called in legal hearings in the UK were designed to leave no doubt in people's minds that this is a politicized case and that he potentially wouldn't get a fair trial. Mm. Could Assange argue that what I released was in the public interest, that it's been followed up by so many media organizations, it's led to some reforms, basically it was important that I do this? The problem for Julian Assange in any forthcoming US uh, defense trial is that he essentially cannot stand up in a U.S. court and uh, under the U.S. Espionage Act and argue that what he did was in the public interest, essentially because there's no provision in the U.S. Espionage Act for a defence like that. Coming up, why Julian Assange's case matters, regardless of what you might think of Julian Assange. Ben, even if you think Assange is a kind of murky character, someone whose controversies have overwhelmed the good that he's done, is there a reason not to want him charged under this act in the US? Like, is there a bigger precedent at at stake here, one that has nothing to do with Assange himself as a person? Yes, would be the answer. I, I think the argument put forward by Julian Assange's supporters, which range from members of the public, uh, politicians from left and right, and organizations like Reporters Without Borders or Amnesty, Amnesty International, is that were he to be extradited it, today, tomorrow it could be any one of us. It could be any journalist from outside of the US. And regardless of what you think of Julian Assange as a person, there's very much a feeling of, among many in journalism around the world that we're talking about a principle here. There's a defense of the principle, not just the person. Right. So what Assange was doing is similar enough to what media companies do today, that if he's being prosecuted today, it might be a journalist tomorrow. Yes. There's a fear that this does open up the possibility that the US could pluck a journalist from any part of the world and extradite them for publishing information which the US authorities don't want to have in the public domain. It would be a a new precedent of sorts. Uh, We've had cases in the past where the UK have said no to extradition of individuals and the US have not pursued it. But it's been around the issues of the threat to their health of being in a US prison. But now that those uh, concerns have been overcome by the US, we're very, very much dealing with the red meat of what it means to be a a journalist, what it it means to be a publisher um, and exercising uh, freedom of speech, saying and reporting what you want about the, the actions of the US and the world. Ben, what does the timeline look like now for Julian Assange? How much longer does he have to wait in Belmarsh Prison for his appeal against Patel's ruling to be heard? It's difficult to say, but it's not going to be over very quickly, potentially going to go on for some months, and it potentially could go on for years. 
if you talk to legal experts here, they don't expect him to be released at any point from prison until the legal process runs its course. It's likely to take a long time now. It's going to continue to see appeals in the UK and potentially it's going to see appeals which go to Europe. So there's a lot of road to be run yet in this, but there is a sense that we're reaching a sort of final furlong. And maybe it's interesting to to consider what that might mean for many people who've been on the fence about Julian Assange. There may be people who are willing to get involved now and, and speak out. Now that Pretty Patel has made a decision, what we expect is battle lines really to be drawn around the issue of free speech and what a journalist is. That was news reporter Ben Quinn speaking with Today in Focus host Michael Safi. This episode was produced by Sammy Kent and Axel Kakutier, with additional production by Daniel Simo. The executive producers of Today in Focus are Elizabeth Casson and Phil Maynard. I'm Jane Lee, and I'll be back with another episode of Full Story for you tomorrow.